may say, I didn't know Jesus had politics <laughs> or he had a p- political viewpoint. Uh, you know, was, was he a Democrat or a Republican? Or I'm sure Jesus, some of you are saying, he definitely must have been a libertarian. Uh, truth be told, the, all these polls that are taken around this time of year uh, have some you know, really interesting and, and I think in, in, so, in many ways distressing results. Uh, there was a recent Pew Research poll that said that uh, this is the most, since they've been researching, this is the most divided our country has ever been politically and otherwise. And they had this interesting graph where they showed people sort of in the two political positions that are the default positions in our country. And there were sort of like two, if you imagine in your mind's eye, two peaks. And for most of our history, they were pretty close together with, with a little tiny valley between them. And they overlapped to a significant degree. Now, there's a huge valley with very little overlap. And what they said was, I thought amongst many things they said, there were two things that they said that were most interesting, is that people today are at this point where their political views now define their friendships. That most of the people in these two peaks only hang out with people who agree with them politically. Now, I don't, you know, back in my day, we used to call that being inbred. Uh, And I've told a number of people about this whole uh, talk I'm going to give. If you never had anybody step on your toes before, your toes are going to be gnarled knobs when I finish today, all right? and I'm, I'm, I'm saying that I had, I had some anxiety about talking about some of this stuff today because I've wrestled with the whole issue of uh, politics and I realized that I've had certain views for a long time and I've just never brought them together in a way that I think I could express uh, simply that would uh, be useful for other people. You know, I've, I've kind of thought, well, this is just where I'm at. And so, uh, in the last few weeks, I, I think I've come to a place of conviction that I, that I feel like it's something that I can share. It's just not my personal opinion about politics. And the other thing that this Pew Research poll uh, discovered that stood out to me was that people today in these two peaks tend to view the people who are in the other peak as a threat to our nation's well-being. That they actually say that. That way beyond a majority of our population is saying that about each other. So, how do we figure out how, as followers of Jesus, to be engaged politically? Because clearly... And I'm going to show you, Jesus was really engaged. He, Jesus talked about all kinds of political things. He did all kinds of things that were very political actions. But he did it in a very unique way. So I call this talk the, the politics of Jesus. And I want to start, we've been reading in the book of Matthew, and it just seems appropriate to continue there. And there's a, there's a passage in Matthew 16 that I think gives us uh, two characteristics of how to engage politically that I think once you hear these, they're going to be sort of self-evident to you, but I'm not sure that, that maybe you've applied them to the point that I'm going to apply them today to us and maybe to you, but uh, this, this passage is in Matthew 16, and it's a very familiar passage. It starts in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And of course, you know, at this point, Jesus is a famous person. He's, uh, everyone's trying to figure out who he is. This is someone, uh, you know, that, that God is clearly with. He's done miracles. He's raised the dead. He's walked on water. He's calmed storms. He's cast out demons. He's, he's tamed crowds, violent crowds of people. He's, he's, he's taken people who are the, the community misfits and turned their lives around. I mean, he's transformed families. Everywhere he goes, it's sort of like in his wake is life and healing and good things and also really, you know, 
pardon the French, pissed off people. <laughs> because Jesus really challenged people. And not everybody liked what he said. But the people that embraced what he said, it just changed their lives. So Jesus says, what do pe- who do people say I am? And he was sort of polling his disciples. This was his, his closest group of disciples. And so they said, well, some say John the Baptist. Some others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But he says, but who do you say I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jonah, excuse me, Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. In other words, this revelation of who I am. I'm going to build this group of people he called the church. And I'm going to, we're going to go back to that word in just a second. And he said, and even the gates of hell will not overcome it. It's the song that, that the team picked out uh, fit this perfectly. It's, it, that, that song uh, expressed and embodied what he's saying in this passage. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone he was the Christ. And he did that just because at this point, he's going to start doing things that create even more opposition. And he doesn't want them, he, he's the one who's going to trigger the opposition, not them. Because their job, as you're going to see eventually, is to tell everybody about Jesus that you know, that he's the one that they need to hear about. He's the one that they need to follow. He's the one who, if they follow, he'll change everything. So, he used this word in here, ecclesia. The word church there, and he uses it a couple of times only in the book of Matthew, is the, is the Greek word ecclesia. And in the ancient world, the word ecclesia was a, a technical term for this. In every city, they had a, uh, a council. It was, it was a large council of people who were the ecclesia. They were the voting members of the city who made all the decisions about what happened in the city? They were the ones who controlled the purse strings. They were the ones who, who um, you know, decided difficult cases and appeals. Uh, there wasn't like an executive like we have in our country. They had this uh, more diverse demographic thing going on. And Jesus said, the city you live in, as people read this, it has an ecclesia, but that's not my ecclesia, I'm forming out of all the people who follow me and who have recognized, excuse me, who I am, I'm forming them into my ecclesia. They are the ones who are really going to be the difference-making community in every community. Now, right now, this sets up a tension. Do you understand? Because uh, just like Pilate, later on, when Jesus was arrested and brought to him, he said, are you, is it true that you're the king of the Jews? Because he was trying to decide, is, you know, are you a threat to me? In other words, are you a threat to Rome? Are you a threat to the political order? And Jesus said, you know, my kingdom is out of this world. You don't have to worry. Uh, you know, I, 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 yeah, but worry. <laughs> you don't have to worry about me. I didn't come to be crowned king by people. I came to do something different that was way, 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 way more undermining of and subverting to this evil order that we all live under. And so, so you know, gosh, Pilate looked at him and said, you know, I don't find anything wrong with this guy. Because seemed, Jesus seemed like he wasn't interested in a fight. He wasn't picking a fight. He wasn't trying to stir up trouble, but he was stirring up trouble. Everybody was agitated about Jesus. Everybody looked at Jesus and said, this guy <laughs> stirs things up. And, you know, Some people today think of Jesus, oh, he was this mild-mannered preacher and teacher. Well, then why did he get crucified? (laughs) If he was just a guy who went around giving some, you know, some interesting little sayings like a Buddha, uh, why did they kill him? He claimed to be more than than just uh, an itinerant spinner of little Jewish tales. He claimed to be way more than that. And his disciples are trying to figure out who he was, and the word ecclesia was a, was a bold word for him to use because he's saying, all of you nobodies, some of you might be a part of the ecclesia because but the ecclesia in those cities was, was composed of uh, 
The people who had fought in a war, you had to have served at least two years in, in the army that, that protected every city. You had to be a man, so women weren't a part of it. You, you, you had to own property most of the time. You had to be free, so you couldn't be a slave. No women, no slaves, no outsiders. So it was a pretty select group of people. And all of a sudden, all the people that are following Jesus, though, he says, all you guys, all you down and outers and misfits and malcontents, ex-malcontents, hopefully. Our church is, I know all you guys are ex-malcontents. That's why we love you so much here. Uh, you guys just did not get that one, didn't you? That, that wasn't a shot at you. That was like your, your changed people. Uh, okay. Don't use the malcontents. They don't like malcontents. Okay. Jesus was saying to all these people that were following him, you're now the ecclesia because of me. I am the anointed one. Peter, you said it. I'm the Christ. I'm the anointed one from God, the son of God. And, and the, all the Roman emperors fancied themselves, the pharaohs and the kings, they were the son of the God, the one God that they worshiped. That gave them their for, the authority, the divine right of kings. Jesus said, I am the king and you are my ecclesia. In the city you're in, you're the difference-making community in the city. Not that other group. Now, here's the thing. This is the point I want you to take away today. The church, not human government, is the difference-making community in the city, in the state, in the nation. It's always been like this. This is what Jesus said. And you may go, well, gosh, what does that mean about government? Well, I'll show you. It's not a very complicated idea that Jesus is introducing. But let me tell you something. This is hard to swallow. I'm going to take you someplace that you're going to go, whoa. I like that idea, but the working that out, that is really going to be hard on me and on my relationships and all kinds of things. You, you've just totally complicated. I didn't know following Jesus was going to complicate my life this much. It always complicates our lives. You read in the book, it complicated their lives. But it, it changed their lives in the best sense of the word. So he offers to do that for us. But it's something radical that he's inviting us into. So how do we engage in this process if, if we, not the government, how do we engage in a political process which is around government? How do we, the followers of Jesus, become this difference-making community within our city? Well, we have, there's two ways that we have to uh, walk this out. And the, the first, as, as usual, it starts with our identity. This is about calling. The word ecclesia means the assembly that's called out. So when they, would, when they would call for the ecclesia, all the people would be doing their jobs and stuff. And like in Athens, there's a, there was a huge structure that could hold thousands of people. And they would call the ecclesia and everyone would be called out of wherever they were, their farmlands, their workshop, you know, uh, out fishing, whatever. And they would come and gather and they would do the city's business. And Jesus is saying, you are my called out people. You're called out from something. That's what I want to first start talking to you about. You're called out of something. To be something, you have to leave something. To become what Jesus wants us to be, he says you're called out of that ecclesia. You're going to be called, the people who are already part of that ecclesia go, gosh, I'm becoming a part of these people. They don't have any power. They don't have any place. They don't have any standing. But the ecclesia back then were the servants of the city, but they also had to fight for the city. They had a loyalty to the city, but our loyalty is ultimate, ultimately to Jesus, but it's also to the community to which that we're called to serve him. So this ecclesia of Jesus, you can see that the church throughout history has been the decision, excuse me, the difference-making community wherever it was. You can start in the early church. Within 150 to 200 years of there being just a handful of followers of Jesus, there were tens of millions of Christians, and they had converted much of the Roman Empire, which was the unconquerable empire of that day. They conquered it, 
according to Dr. Ramsey McMullen, who's a professor uh, of ancient history at, at Yale University, he's written just book after book after book about Christianity in the Roman Empire. And he's not a Christian. He's just, that's his scholarly focus. And one of the things he says is, if you, if you go back into all the records and all the writings, the Roman Empire, the writings in the Roman Empire by Romans and Greeks and Christians and Jews, what they said about how the Christians converted the Roman Empire and conquered it was it's totally surprising because they said you, they, they proclaimed this message about Jesus and they did three things. They healed people who were sick. They drove out demons from people and they lovingly served the poor and the needy and the outcasts and their enemies and the sick and everybody else that nobody cared about. The Christians were the ones that loved those people in the name of their Savior. And it just changed everything. It changed everything. Give you some other examples. Uh, They spoke out against infanticide, abortion, slavery. If you don't know what infanticide is, it was where a family didn't think, for for one of two reasons, they would take their, their children, particularly girls, baby girls that were born, and if they didn't, they didn't like them, they didn't feel like they had enough food for them, they would put them out on the street. Or they would take them to the local garbage dump and just leave their babies there. That was infanticide. And the Christians would find these babies and they would take them and they would raise them. Nobody else would because everybody else thought, oh, you know, another mouth to feed. But as I'll show you in a second, Christians had a unique view about every human being that they got from Jesus that made them totally a, a, a different breed of people. Uh, they spoke out against the gladiator contests. You know, we're getting to the point in, in our modern sports era where they're becoming like gladiator contests where people's lives are just being destroyed for our entertainment. And the Christians said, we can't be entertained by other people's pain and, and degradation. And, and death and, and violence and murder, they just said, we're not going we're we're to stand up against that and speak out against it. Now, these were people who had no standing, no power. So they did this courageously, and it cost them a lot of times. It made them a, you know, a thorn in everyone's side. They, uh, like in the, in the 1800s, uh, the, the British Empire was built largely on the, the value of, that they got from slavery. And some Christians were, became convinced that slavery, human slavery, was an evil, and they began to fight it. And they fought it politically, they fought it socially, and it took them decades to, 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 to get even the slightest bit of, of support. And at a certain point, they got laws elected, that, uh, uh, I mean, laws written and passed that, that uh, changed slavery. And eventually, they emancipated all the slaves in the Roman Empire, I mean, in the uh, British Empire. And in England, they paid reparations to the slaves. And it was a very unpopular thing. People lost a lot of money over this because slavery was a very, very lucrative part of the economy. And then that inspired the abolitionists in the United States who were Christians. Christians were the ones that led the abolition of slavery in England and around the world and in America. The Christians were the ones that did it. The church. Not the government. The government was in bed and complicit with the slave trade. Our government is complicit with with abusing uh, illegal immigrants. It lets stuff go on. Whatever you think about immigration, our government doesn't do something about it because our government is in bed with business interests who profit from cheap labor. And you're, you're naive if you don't believe that. It's true. Whatever you think about, uh, you know, uh, how immigration should, should be uh, handled legally, our government doesn't do anything about it because there's these interests that argue and, and they have money behind them they argue for the continuation of the system we have. 
which is, it's just, it's terrible what it does to real people like us. Now, they don't look like us. They have different skin color. They speak different languages oftentimes, etc., etc. And that's the trouble. That's the struggle. But Christians in this time said, no, we're not going to be complicit with this stuff. We're not just going to turn our eyes, a blind eye, to the stuff that's going on around us that, that is contrary to God's will. So uh, the church in South Africa fought against apartheid. Apartheid was a hellish system that oppressed black people in particular and other minorities. And the church led the fight to abolish apartheid and, and, and it had destroyed South Africa socially in many ways. And there were Christians in the vineyard that were in the, at the center of this. And then after all the laws were passed and apartheid was abolished and new government and the whole system was, was changed, the biggest problem they had was all the devastation and division and human carnage of the system. And the church led the way to reconciliation, which is still going on, to heal the community. Again, it's something that, that the church has done that other people didn't want to do. They might have thought about it, but they just didn't have the horsepower to do it. The, the, the character, conviction, moral horsepower. That's, where does that come from? Jesus said, it comes from me. What you, what you see in me, if you follow me, I'm going to make you into a community that's like me, that's built on me, that has my authority to do what I did. And uh, his disciples, you know, I'm going to show you in a second, that was a challenge for them. The, the, the U.S., here in the United States, Christians led the fight for prison reform, labor reform, all kinds of reforms. Christians were the ones that started all the hospitals and orphanages. There's so many things that the church has done. Because we, from the very beginning, were meant to be the difference-making community in our city. Not human government. And you're going to see in a second, I'm not anti-human government. The Bible is not anti-human government. Government, all human government is an extension of God's government. But what the church saw was it cannot be the difference-making institution in our community. And I'll show you why in a second. It can't. But Jesus said, I'm building this community called the church. It's called out of all these other places to be this difference-making community. And, and if you're a follower of Jesus, you're called to be a part of it. Uh, another professor, R.R. R. Palmer, uh, he wrote a book that for like, for 70, about 70 years or so, it's been one of the key college textbooks on, on history. And it's called, uh, the, Dr. R.R. R. Palmer, it's called A History of the Modern World. The New York Times had a list of the 20 most important college textbooks, and this was on it. Now listen to what Palmer said in here. It's impossible to exaggerate the importance of the coming of Christianity it brought with it, for one thing, an altogether new sense of human life. For the Greeks had shown man his mind, but the Christians showed him his soul. They taught that in the sight of God, all souls were equal, that every human life was sacrosanct and inviolate, or, or important, and had value. Where the Greeks had identified the beautiful and the good they had thought ugliness to be bad, and they, they shrank away from disease and imperfection and from everything that was misshapen and horrible and repulsive. Whereas the Christians sought out the diseased, the crippled, the mutilated to give them help. Love for the ancient Greek was never distinguished from Venus, the goddess of love. For the Christians held that God himself was love, and it took on deep overtones of compassion and sacrifice. A difference-making community, not human government. Do you, when I say human government, does it call to mind, the first thing come to mind, compassion and sacrifice? 
I hate to admit this to you guys, but like I'm an, I'm a, I'm like a, an old time horror film guy. And I don't see slasher movies stuff like that. But but they have a new uh, remake of the movie Godzilla, Shin Godzilla, and uh, I'm not standing up here recommending it to anybody. It's kind of cheesy, but in the beginning of the movie, uh, they had this the the the, uh, the director they were they were poking fun at their culture because it was, it was a film made in Japan by Japanese filmmakers about Japan being attacked by this you know, huge uh, Godzilla and uh, this, this creature is devastating their city and they show the government having these series of meetings Okay, and they start out with all these people and they can't decide what to do and they go, okay, let's go to this room and have another meeting and they go to that room and have another meeting and then they go, they, they can't disagree, can't agree what to do and they go, oh, we, and each meeting gets a little smaller and a little smaller and there's less people in it, a little smaller and then as they're doing it, Godzilla's like devastating the city. It was just kind of, you know, in, in, in a Japanese way, it was kind of funny. You had to kind of be there to, to, to laugh. <laughs> but it just, it makes you think, bureaucracy, Red tape, waste. Uh, you know, gosh, that's not the, 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 you know, the best uh, that, that we can expect from humanity is human government. And most of us know that. We kind of get it. And on top of, the truth is we are this, as the church, we are the difference-making community in every city. The problem is, there's many times in history where we have aligned ourselves with unjust governments, unjust interests, and the power we have has strengthened their hands and they've just done devastating things. You know, you go back to World War II, to Adolf Hitler, the church was in bed with Adolf Hitler. Very few Christians spoke out against him and, 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 and what Nazism was advocating. There's lots of things where we've been on the wrong side of, of God's will, not the wrong side of history, the wrong side of God and his will. And so the power we have has been co-opted and it's, it's done terrible things. It's brought about, and, and more than anything else, I think in our, in our age, the time we're in right now, our indifference, not so much that we're, because a lot of Christians are pretty stirred up. We want to be with something. But our indifference is as devastating as our cooperation. And believe it or not, when we're divided, it ends up effectively producing the same effect as indifference would. Because the church is not called to be part of this, these two mountains that are, are moving away from one another. And, and as they do it, there's just destruction and division and devastation in, in their wake. Amen. Thank you. Uh, oh. Okay, let's just, at, the end of, at the end of that, what I said, I'm just pausing. I got one amen. Okay, let me pull it back up. So now I want to read. I want to save it. I want to save it for later when I really get you fired up here. The next passage that Jesus spoke that Matthew recorded, it says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. You're going to be crucified? You're going to be rejected? No way. That's not how we all have it planned. You know, that's not, that's, that can't be God's will, Right? Like for you to suffer? Uh, how could that ever bring about uh, anything good? I mean, there's a lot he's saying in this. And so Jesus turns and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, adversary. You are a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Now I want to stop there for a second before they read the next part. We don't realize how easily the spirit of this age, which was... Jesus was naming and saying, Peter, you are being motivated by the spirit of this age. Now, this is right after, probably, Peter is commended by Jesus and saying, God showed you that. The spirit of God is speaking through you, Peter. Peter could quickly be co-opted by the spirit of the age and go, no, Lord, which 
you know, is obviously uh, sort of a weird thing to say, no, Lord. And Peter was oblivious to that. But Jesus is saying, I'm going to the cross. That is where I'm going to win this victory. And I'm telling you something important. Listen, and here's what he says next. Then Jesus said to all of his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give for an exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he's done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And so, this is the next insight. We need to engage politically first, because we're this difference-making community. This is our identity. We need to engage politically with confidence. Not pride, confidence. But the second thing Jesus says here is we need to engage politically distinctively. What does distinctively mean? It means to be different. And you, get, you go, I am different. I'm not a liberal. I am different. I'm not a conservative. That's what difference means to you. If you think that's true, you are part of the problem. You've been co-opted by the same spirit that co-opted Peter that said, God forbid, Lord, that you would go to the cross because suffering and sacrifice can't be part of God's will. There's no way. No good thing comes out of suffering, right? We all pray when we're hurting, God, get me out of this. And you're saying, God, get me into it? <laughs> that following you means I'm following you to the cross? What kind of deal is that? But Jesus said this backward logic that, it, that undergirds this community that's supposed to be the difference-making community in the world, it's undergirded by the, 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 the belief and then the commitment to the idea that we, when we lose our life, we find it. And if we try to hold on to our life, and play the same political game everybody else is playing, we will lose our life and we will lose everything else that's good. That there's no other way around it. Now, Jesus showed us this. Jesus stressed to his, his, his disciples that he's a king, but he was a servant king. And we've heard that so much, we're sort of numb to the implications of that. But if you're sitting here, to be a servant king... Again, it's a contradiction. You, you can't be a king and a servant. Because if you're a servant, that, that means you're the one that always that has to fetch everything and do all the dirty work. And if you're a king, you're the one that gets to tell the people the dirty work they have to do. But Jesus was both. And he says, my community will reflect me if it's my community. If they're following me, they will reflect me. And they'll reflect me in how they engage politically. So they will reflect distinctively. Here's what Jesus did. Jesus rejected all the political ideologies of his day. He had the same political divide we have today, but they had some other options. There were conservatives in his day. There were progressives in his day, the Sadducees. The conservatives were the Pharisees, the party of the Pharisees. There was the Zealots who were the radicals. There was the Essenes who wanted to just hide from, whoops, they wanted to hide away from the world. We call them the Amish today. Because they wanted to be pure, not a bad idea. And all of these parties had good ends in mind. Every one of them. But here's, just to show you, Jesus did not buy into any of them. They wanted to come and make him king. Didn't do it, right? They came to him to try to trick him, to get him drawn into this divide. Hey, Jesus, uh, Caesar 
demands we pay a tax. What do you say? They thought they were going to trick him. He said, show me a coin, you know. They gave him this little thing. Then later on, Peter comes and says, should we pay taxes? And he says, yeah, go catch a fish and then it'll be a coin and then take the coin and pay my tax. So Jesus then went into Jerusalem on a donkey, which was a parody of Caesar, who would come into cities on a big horse with a, you know, a great crowd behind, you know, a great army behind him. Jesus comes into the city of peace, Jerusalem, where he's going to get crucified. He comes in with this ragtag group of people. He was making fun of Caesar. He paid taxes to Caesar. He makes fun of Caesar. And all the people that are seeking power, he just didn't buy into any of it. He didn't go along with this game. And he commands that we not go along with it either. Because we're his community. What does that look like? Well, we cannot embrace modern politic, political ideologies. I no longer consult, call, I have, for years I haven't said I'm a Republican. I was raised a Republican. I'm not a Republican. I've said I'm a conservative. I reject that now. That is part of the problem. If you, I believe if you say you're a conservative or a liberal, you're part of the problem. I'll show you why. The kingdom of God is not conservative. There's a book named Get Low. I've, I've recommended it on my Facebook page before. It's about humility. And in Get Low, Jack Wisdom, who's the author, writes this. I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it. A conservative ideology advocates for free markets, individual freedom and responsibility, a strong military, you know, uh, uh, the ethic of, of life, you know, protecting life of all kinds. But the problem with conservative ideology is it's based on maintaining a status quo. And if you know anything about the kingdom of God, it is constantly trying to undermine the status quo. That the status quo is not a good thing. That Jesus has something better than the status quo. But that's the essence of conservatism is you're trying to conserve something. Do you get it? The kingdom of God is not trying to conserve things. It's trying to create a new order. Now, conservative ideology also underemphasizes the importance of community and it underemphasizes the, the fallenness of individuals because we talk so much about individuality and, and individual responsibility, but we, I think a lot of times we don't realize how messed up people are and how little they can do by themselves. And they, under, they misunderstand social contract and how important the social contract we have with each other is. Because I think a lot of times in my conservative background, in my conservative thinking, conservatism is like a pile of rocks, just individual rocks piled together. There's nothing connecting them except individual responsibility, you know, bootstraps, ideology. Now, the kingdom of God, on the other hand, is also not progressive. It's not progressive. Progressive ideology advocates for social justice, our social contract together, including care for the poor and minorities, criminal justice reform, equal rights for all, among many other commendable ideas. Individual responsibility among conservatives, it's a commendable idea. All those things are commendable. But they have this other end of the spectrum emphasized by progressives. The problem with progressive ideology is it's based on this flawed idea that government can solve every problem. Now, progressives will say, no, we don't believe that. Well, a couple of years ago in New York City, they enacted a statute to limit the size of soft drink cups to try to curb obesity. Do you not think that that is the essence, the picture, the very parody of a blind belief that government can solve problems? And you may go, don't you want to end obesity? Yeah. Coercion does not change hearts. The evidence, a, a big government becomes very coercive. 
It has a whole other flaw in it that conservatives don't have. But it is idolatry to think that humans can solve their own problems. Yet it is a very attractive idolatry. This ignores the real limits, progressive, uh, progressive political ideology, ignores the real limits of coercive government as well as how the accumulation of power corrupts well-intentioned people. I've said this many times before. Kind of coming to close here. We used to work with an organization in the city called Bread. And it's, it's, it's largely uh, run by, led by, and, and uh, volunteers all come from progressive churches. And part of what we were always trying to do was to uh, attack problems in the city each year, one particular problem. We'd find who in the city was in a position to address it. We would offer them a solution. We would help them to, to, to carry that out and support them and advocate for them. And the people that we were dealing with were all progressives who, who said we want to, to address those things. But they fought us tooth and nail against getting those things done. And many of those people that I work with who are progressives are really good people. And they would look at these people who were in these positions of authority that they had elected. And they would, were so frustrated at their intransigence and the fact that they would work against the very things that, that they said they, they, were, they were running for and that they were going to advocate when they got in the office because the system itself is under dark spiritual powers. A lot of people don't believe that. Human government is infiltrated and manipulated by dark demonic powers. Every institution is. Satan came to Jesus and said, I'll give you the whole world that's mine to give you if you will bow down and worship me. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world, all the human governments in the world. And he said, they're mine to give you. That wasn't a made-up temptation. And Jesus just said, no, no thanks. And parenthetically, Satan, I'm going to the cross and I'm going to kick your butt there and I'm going to take back all the kingdoms of the world from you. But I'm going to do it by dying and not by compromising with you but we if we're progressive we think we can join hands with people who believe that human beings can solve their own problems and we're actually going to solve problems is our country getting better year after year after year of this no it wasn't getting better under conservative leaders either whatever you think going back to the good old days there's always been good things going on amongst a lot of bad things. It just shifts around. And we are just getting sucked into this system. And we, with our complicity, whatever side you're on, because the Christian right have uh, their counterpart, the Christian left now, and they're both fighting against each other. And I read magazines where they're arguing and they're saying things. I don't even, I don't post anything political on Facebook anymore. I, not because I don't have an opinion. I just realize it is not accomplishing anything. Amen. It doesn't. It isn't. Amen. And Jesus is servant king. I'll give you a punchline here. Jesus came along and said, no one, he told this parable, he said, nobody. So if you don't believe me right now about this whole, uh, the kingdom of God is not progressive. Because you think, oh yeah, the kingdom of God is very progressive. All this stuff you've talked about, that, that's part of the kingdom of God. Yeah, all this other stuff is too, but that's not part of your view. And same thing if you think you're a conservative. Here's what Jesus said. He said, a wise person doesn't put new wine in an old wineskin. Because the new wine will ferment, and the old wineskin is inflexible and brittle, and the fermentation process will cause it to explode. It will destroy the wineskin, and it will empty out the wine. Dumb thing to do. So, you think, I'm going to put the new wine of Jesus into the conservative wineskin. Jesus says, no, it is an old wineskin. You want to put the new wine of Jesus in the... The progressive wineskin. 
you know, I hope you're not wearing white. <laughs> you know, it's going to be all over you. And here's the thing. Wineskins, if you've ever seen them before, you've you ever seen people hold them in movies, these wineskins? Wineskins are made by uh, the, the rear, the, the hind quarter of an animal. They would, they would kill the animal and they would, they would skin it and they would form this wineskin. And they would, you know, create a little uh, bottle uh, drinking end and they would close off at the other end. Here's the point. Every time a new wineskin is created, something has to die. We don't want our progressive ideology that we're so personally attached to, that we're so identified with to die. But Jesus ain't putting new wine in that. He's not putting new wine in the Republican Party. We are called out of that. Do you understand this? We are called out of it. Now you go, but John, we live in a two-party system. I get it. I know there are hard choices to be made. And I'm not saying anything about the present election. I'm, I'm, I'm just telling you, though, you don't have to vote. If you don't have a good option, you don't have to vote. And do you think, it, it, this, is, this is the point, if you don't get this, this is what struck me about the way I believed and just it was like, like a, a gut punch to me was, I've been agonizing, what if I don't vote and so-and-so gets in office? They're going to ruin the nation. And you know, when I think that way, I really believe that human government's the answer. If you're really worried what Donald Trump will do will ruin our nation, you believe human government is the difference-making institution in our country. And you are wrong. Can you see that now? All this strife my God, how can this go on in the body of Christ? How can we be this blind? Because we don't know what our identity is. We are the ecclesia. We, we are the di- difference-making community in this country, in this, each city. But people didn't think Jesus made a difference because the way he operated he operated outside of the crazy system, the upside-down system. He didn't want to be a part of this broken world system. He said, I didn't come to fix this thing. I came to bring something new. And before I tell you how he does that, I just want to remind you of something. In the book of Daniel, there's one of the most famous stories in the Bible of Daniel interpreting the dream of this king and, and, and the king was troubled. He, king Nebuchadnezzar, he was, the, like, he was the king of the greatest superpower of that time. The epitome of human government. And he had this dream. He was really troubled by it. And Daniel told him the dream and interpreted it. And to summarize it, the king saw this great statue. And, and the statue represented the, his kingdom and seating the greatest human kingdoms of his, his era and afterwards. And he saw this huge, glorious statue. And then he saw this little tiny stone, not made by human hands, strike the statue at its feet and pulverize the statue. And it all blew away. And the little stone became a huge mountain that filled the whole earth. Do you think God was remaking human government? Or do you think it was something else? My guess is, God's getting rid of that, all the forms of human government we have. What is this little stone that grows into this huge mountain that fills the world? It is the habitation of God on the earth, his ecclesia, his people. And it, it starts small, and it, and it looks insignificant. But it, it's built on Jesus. It has Jesus in the midst of it. And if it operates with confidence and distinctiveness, and I'll show you the distinctiveness in detail here, it becomes this this powerful thing that is the difference-making community in its city. But it can't do it unless it's confident that Jesus is with it 
and, unless it operates distinctively. Let me give you a quote. By God's design, the kingdom of God expands and transforms the world. And as we allow Christ's character to be formed in us, as we think and act like Jesus, others come under the loving influence of the kingdom and eventually their own hearts are won over to the king of kings. The reign of God is thus established in their hearts and the kingdom of God expands. That process, scripture tells us, will culminate in the return of the king accompanied by legions of angels at which time Satan's rule will, be, will end and the earth will be purged of all that's inconsistent with God's rule. And his kingdom of love will be established once and for all. This, in a nutshell, is the primary thing God is up to in our world. He's not primarily about getting people to pray a magical sinner's prayer or to confess certain magical truths as a means of escaping hell. He's not about gathering together a group who happen to believe all the right things, even if we read the Apostles' Creed and say, we believe that. That's not what he's trying to do. Not that that's not important. Not that the sinner's prayer and following Jesus and all that, how you start that, isn't important. He's about gathering together a group of people who embody the kingdom, who individually and corporately manifest the reality of the reign of God on the earth. And he's about growing this new kingdom through his body to take over the world. The vision of what God is about lies at the heart of Jesus' ministry, and it could contrast with the kingdom of the world more sharply. There's nothing about the servant king that could contrast more sharply than this world, than the fact that Jesus was a servant. And and through humble, loving service, proclaiming the kingdom of God, healing the sick, casting out demons, caring for all these people nobody else will care for. Groups of people, each small group of people, just saying, in our little ward, our little community, we are going to be the difference-making people in that community. We're going to sacrifice. We're going to serve. We're going to be inconvenienced like our Savior was inconvenienced. Because he emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. And he was crucified and rejected. And then he ascended to God's right hand to show us this is the way it works. Not trying to get to the top of the heap. Our kingdom has got to live out this value that the last will be first and the first will be last. And if we are the first, and we have places of prominence, we should be the quickest people to say, I need to get down the ladder as quick as possible because this seat I'm in is not going to be here very long. I don't mean you're motivated selfishly. I mean you go, in this right-side-up kingdom that's coming, it's the servant that's the most important, not the CEO. And the more I can act like that servant, the more I can be like Jesus and please him. Because one day he's going to come back and he's going to separate the sheep and the goats, the people who say, I wanted to be at the top. I wanted to have my way. Now many of us go, well, I can't. I'm not like that. Yeah, you are. You may not be a money-grubbing, outwardly, materialist, stepping on everyone to get to the top. But when you're indifferent to other people, you're just thinking about yourself. It's essentially the same thing. If you're not a giver, you're a taker. Now, we all struggle with that idea, but that's what Jesus said. The distinctiveness of the kingdom is these are people who believe that God is a giver. Jesus was a giver. He gave his life away. And in the end, he had more than he had before. Because he lived that life. And they live it in every dimension of their lives. But most of all, we live it together. See, the mistake we make is, I either want the government or the pastors or somebody else to do it, or I want all the individual people to take care of themselves. And that's not what the church is. We are this institution that's in between government and all the individuals. Because they are inadequate in themselves to deal with the problems of humanity. And so God's created this, what some people call today, mediating institutions. The church is the, is the top of the heap in that respect. So 
We respect and obey human government because we recognize it's God-given, but it has a limited role in keeping order. With the full understanding, God chooses and authorizes fallen imperfect people to govern. There isn't anybody else that governs but fallen imperfect people. You just pick which kind of imperfection you want to vote for. You're a fool if you don't think that's true. But let me tell you something. <laughs> like, like the old guy in the Indiana Jones movie who uh, said, you have to pick from all these chalices. And the one guy looks at it and he's, he picks the most glorious looking chalice and he, he goes over and takes the water and drinks out of it and he dies, right? And uh, the old knight says, he chose poorly. It's kind of like, whoa, that was ironic. <laughs> The worst character trait to pick is a proud person. And as far as I can see, both the main candidates are the epitome of pride. So I just got a little of my own viewpoint in there. But I just want to throw out this idea to you that if we, whoever we pick is going to mess some things up. It doesn't matter. You know, you, you, you pick out Abraham Lincoln, you know. Abraham Lincoln uh, oversaw the Civil War, not the best moment in our nation's history. Everybody's going to create problems by the way they govern. But we, we're going to have less problems if we have a person who's not proud. And you go, what does that lead me? Well, I'm going to leave that up to you. I just want you to understand that's the kind of thing you've got to think about. That's, the kind of, that's, that's one of the, the distinctions you have to hold in tension. Oh, so we respect human government. We challenge human government because we understand that Satan is manipulating every human institution and corrupting them as much as possible, leading to many unjust outcomes. We identify with, advocate for, and serve the poor, the outsiders, the criminals, etc., because Jesus, the servant king, modeled this life of humble service for us. We call hurting humanity to repentance and responsibility because Jesus the servant king modeled this for us. I'll give you a perfect example. Ephesians 4.28, Jesus says, I mean, uh, P, uh, Paul says to the, the Ephesian Christians, he says, let him who has been stealing steal no longer, but let him work hard with his hands that he may have something to give to those in need. Do you see how that encompasses the progressive and the conservative viewpoint. The whole Bible's like that. It does not take sides. That's why you will never resolve the difficulty between the two peaks. It's irreconcilable except in Jesus. But you gotta be willing to kill something to get a new wineskin. You gotta be willing to let go of your self-identification, and, and, and more importantly, and this is a challenge, is what your friends will think of you. Since most of us have started just living in these little silos of like-minded people, it's going to cost to say, I'm not going to play that game anymore. I'm not going to be a part of that. Your family's going to go, what's, what's happened to you? Well, I'm just following Jesus more consistently. You can, you can tell them that. So, we are being called out of, I'm, uh, we're going to take communion today, and we're, we're being called out of something to something. When we take the Lord's Supper, we're being called out of our loyalties and, and where we find our life in this world, and we're being called to find our life in Jesus. So what we're saying is I'm going to lose my life and all the things that might possibly sustain me and trust that Jesus will be the one that sustains me, that he'll be the one that I get life as it's meant to be. And you're coming to him. The ecclesia is a called out of together community in which Jesus is in the midst. And there's challenges both ways, isn't there? I want to show you something. I 
going to put this up here because a couple of months ago we did this little exercise. And I, I don't know if everybody's going to, I'll put it up here so everybody can see it. This is really tricky here. It's like a, I'm probably impale myself. We did a little dream exercise. And we put, you guys remember this? Some of you are here. And I ask you, what do you think God might be calling us to do? Because I believe the things that comes to, come to mind for some of you are really the things that God's got on his heart for us together. And these are some of the things you put. Now, some of these are about us, like our building, etc. all that. It's not bad, but, uh, you know, reach the Muslim community with the good news. Uh, I can't read my own writing. <laughs> Impact the local heroin problem. Um, I got to get down here. Sorry. Uh, stop. Help, well, help. Yes. Someone, when someone said stop human trafficking, I'm thinking, well, that's a pretty big deal for one church. So uh, we want to, how can we impact human trafficking and see people being freed from that? Uh, shut-ins. Helping shut-ins. Housing for the homeless. Uh, plant more churches. Uh, Exceed our budget. We already do that, by the way. So uh, I think they meant with that that people would give more money. Healing for mental illness, physical illness. Uh, that would be a culture of prayer. Mobilize uh, our senior talent. Diver- uh, diversity. Uh, 25, I'll say, uh, car. Oh, place for children with disabilities. Uh, political transformation in our country. Healing for the sexually broken. Uh, international terrorism, people coming to Christ by the thousands. That, I mean, I, I don't know if there's any more after that. I thought there were some more, but you could see a few of these things. Some of these things are, are already God's putting them on our doorstep. I just want to take a minute before we take communion to ask you to do something. What's really, really important is for us to hear God's voice, for Him to speak to us And for each of us to hear a calling, a calling. Now that calling, I'm telling you, that calling is to let go of your political ideology, whatever it is. Because everybody here, you, you may say, I'm not a conservative, I'm not a liberal, I'm a moderate. That's as much a part of the problem as the other ones. Jesus is asking us to let go of those labels and those identifications, and to embrace something different. But what, how we serve, how that's going to work, at, work itself out in, in, in many of these areas and other ones, it's going to come down to us hearing the Spirit speaking to us. There isn't anybody here that isn't called to be part of God's people, but also called to Make a difference in the community. And some of you go, well, I don't have a real passion, but I like to be involved in what other people are being passionate for. Well, let the Lord show you what that is. We're going to talk about this next week, about sort of the next step in that whole idea. So I just want you to close your eyes for a second. And we're going to take communion, just giving you this opportunity. You know, Jesus was moved with compassion when he saw the, the crowds that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said, uh, pray for the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And then he started sending people out. We've talked about that the last few weeks. So w- what might the Lord be trying to stir up in your heart? Some of you, you're involved in 600 different things. And that's not Jesus. That's your anxiety. That's your guilt. Who knows what it is? It's not Jesus. He will focus somewhere. He told the disciples, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Lord, as we uh, prepare to take this symbol of your, your, your body that was given for us and the new covenant that you've made and your presence among us, 
We ask right now that you would speak to us. That, Lord, you would put your compassion in our hearts for other people. Single moms, immigrants, the elderly, at-risk youth, Lord, the poor, people with mental illness, heroin addiction, women and children that are being trafficked. Lord, people who, who struggle just with the ability to read. And on and on and on. We know your heart is towards all these people. Lord, I ask that you would speak to everyone that's here right now, either confirming what passion, your compassion is formed in their hearts, or begin to birth something, plant seeds today of compassion that they can begin to respond to. And Lord, that they can let go of their political commitments and ideologies and begin to embrace being part of a community here or wherever that becomes your hands and feet with the very people that everybody says they want to help.